0: Hey, Bible readers, I'm Tara Lee Cobble, and I'm your host for the Bible Recap. Hey, friends, it's Tara Lee coming to you from my phone. If you have a phone or if you just have the Internet, did you know that you have one of the most powerful tools for the deployment of the gospel in the history of the universe? So this week, every day at the top of the episode, I'm going to issue a challenge to you. I want you to join me in helping spread the understanding of the gospel to the nations. Now, there are incredible organizations working to get the gospel into every written and spoken language by the year 2033, but you and I probably had access to Bibles long before we ever actually understood scripture. So what we want to do is we want to encourage and challenge you to find two friends who live in other countries and invite them to read through the Bible with you next year and to do the Bible recap with you so that they will fall more in love with the word, fall more in love with scripture, understand scripture more, and be empowered and equipped themselves to continue the spread of the gospel to those three billion unreached people. So will you do that today? Will you think of two people that you know who live in other countries besides where you live and invite them to read through the Bible with the Bible recap and you next year? All right. I'm going to issue this challenge every day this week, and hopefully we'll have so many new nations joining and reading and understanding and loving God's Word alongside us. All right, send some emails. Paul opens today in his letter to the church at Corinth with a reminder of his role in their lives. Apparently, some people discredit him or refuse to view him as an apostle. Some are saying he's not an apostle because he doesn't receive money from them. But he says, the same authority that allows me the right to receive money from you is the authority that allows me to deny money from you. Your writing me a paycheck is not what makes me an apostle. I'm an apostle because God appointed me, not you. He goes on to list the other things apostles have the right to do, including have their physical needs taken care of, get married, and make their sole living and income through ministry. He argues that he has every right to receive support from them, but that he has chosen to deny that right so that they can't second-guess his motives but it seems to backfire on him. They're second-guessing him because he's denying their money. How ridiculous is it that he has to defend his right to not get paid? But essentially, he says, You didn't hire me, so you can't fire me. I'm going to preach the gospel regardless. When we get to 2 Corinthians, we'll find out more of what's happening behind the scenes here. But in the meantime, he's restricting his own rights in order to preach the gospel to more people without putting any kind of stumbling block in their way. He becomes all things to all people denying himself freedoms in order to meet them where they are. This idea of becoming all things to all people has been wildly taken out of context. It isn't a path to abuse God's grace. Paul is restricting his freedoms, not taking ungodly liberties with them. He's intentional about all these things, living a life of discipline and purpose, because while all those things are temporary, the rewards of sharing the gospel are eternal. In chapter 10, Paul talks about the church's struggle with idolatry, something the Jews have been familiar with throughout their history. He says their ancestors witnessed God and His character in a variety of ways through the years. They experienced His presence in the pillar of the cloud that guided them through the wilderness and into the promised land. They experienced His protection when He parted the seas for them to cross, helping them escape the oppression of their enemies. And they experienced His provision in the way He gave them food and water, even water from a rock. And Paul compares that water-giving desert rock to Christ Himself. Despite God's presence, protection, and provision— the hearts of their ancestors still wandered off into idolatry. Some of that idolatry led them into sexual sin. Paul references a scenario that happened in Numbers 25, where God brought divine judgment on the people who rebelled against him in that way. Paul urges them to turn away from sexual sin, but also from things like grumbling and testing God. It seems crazy to see grumbling in a list alongside sexual sin, but Paul's words point out that all those things are an affront to God's sovereignty and goodness. All of those things are our way of saying that we know better than God and have a better plan than Him. Whether our sins are subtle or drastic, they represent idolatry of self. They attempt to dethrone God and position ourselves in His place. Paul says we're all capable of these sins, so we have to stay humble and stay on guard against them. If someone thinks they're above this type of sin, they're demonstrating the same kind of arrogance that is at the very heart of these sins—an elevated view of self. Temptation will come to everyone— But when temptation shows up in our mailbox, it will always have a free bonus gift from God, the God-given power to resist temptation. Then Paul addresses food offered to idols again. He first addressed this back in chapter 8. He's expounding on those ideas a little more here since it corresponds to his current theme of idolatry. At the time, the Corinthians were going to pagan temples, hanging around after the sacrifices and eating the food there. He realizes this is a potential snare for them. And it's an easy first step into idolatry and away from Yahweh. He says, Look, when people are sacrificing food to idols, they think they're making offerings to powerful gods, but the reality is they're offering food to demons. False religions aren't just made-up ideas. The pagan gods are demons. And since you take part in the Lord's Supper, His body and His blood, then participating in all of this is idolatry. Then he switches scenarios. What if they're eating food sacrificed to idols in someone's home and not in a pagan temple? Paul says, hey, if no one mentions that's where it came from, eat up. But if they tell you and you still eat it, they're going to think you're on board with it. So you should refuse to eat it because it gets in the way of your opportunity to share the gospel. In the temple scenario, the problem is idolatry. And in the house scenario, the problem is the other person's mindset. The problem is never the food itself. It's how the food is used and viewed. These are some very specific scenarios the Corinthian church is dealing with, but they potentially have broader application. In general, as far as Paul is concerned, anyone can eat whatever they want as long as their thanks is directed toward God. In chapter 11, Paul changes gears a bit and starts talking about different practices within the church, and he hits on some things that are touchy topics when we read these passages today. They weren't as touchy back then, most likely, because of how the culture operated, Today, there are many ways these passages are unpacked and explained, but I'll address the primary view of Orthodox Christianity through the years. Paul starts out by painting a picture of marriage, which he connects not only to our relationship with God, but to our relationship with the Church as well. Before we jump into this, it's helpful for us to remember that all this is being written by a man who continually lays down his freedoms and doesn't argue for his own rights, so that he can let his humility lay the groundwork for him to share the gospel— in recent years, these verses have been used to craft arguments against Paul and God and Scripture. But if we remember what Paul's character is like and what we've seen of God's character throughout Scripture and through the ministry of Jesus, we'll have a proper lens for viewing these verses. Because Scripture interprets Scripture. First, Paul impacts the authority structure in marriage. This idea isn't new to us since we've seen the authority structure in the Trinity demonstrated repeatedly. They're one, united in purpose and in vision but with different roles and responsibilities, and the Father is the head. In the same way, the husband is the head of the marriage and Christ is the head of the church. Anything without a head is dead. By the way, the word glory means to give the right opinion of something, and Paul says this is what's happening with men as the head. While Paul doesn't deny Genesis 127, which says women are made in the image of God and gives us equal value to men, he leans into the fact that men are revealing the headship of the Father. Roles don't indicate value, they indicate assignment. In this culture, which is Roman culture, not Jewish culture, men who prayed in pagan temples would cover their head. Paul says he doesn't want them to bring their pagan culture into the church. He flips the script on them and tells them men to uncover their heads. And women typically wore veils to cover their heads if they were married, kind of like an ancient version of the wedding ring, while unmarried women just wore their regular hair. But apparently in the church, some of the married women were taking their veils off. And this is an especially problematic scenario because the church in Corinth had so much sexual sin going on. Paul was like, this is not honoring to your husband. It looks like you've rejected him. Put your wedding ring on. Help people have the right understanding of your marriage. As an unmarried woman, none of this applies to me. But it's also not offensive to me. Paul isn't discrediting or diminishing women. Men and women are mutually dependent. And also, he's talking about a cultural context that is foreign to most of us. So, if you want a 21st century summary, it might look something like this. Do you need to wear a hat to church if you're a married woman? Not unless it's super cute and you're having a bad hair day or you just want to. But do you need to wear your wedding ring since that's how our culture signifies marriage? Probably. It's not a law, but it's helpful and honoring. And as a single woman, I wear that finger veil anyway. It keeps the creeps away. Paul wraps up with a few corrections about factions in the church and how they've been mishandling the Lord's Supper. The churches often meet in the homes of rich people because they're big enough to hold everybody. But the poor people have to work long days, then, because they don't have their own cars, they have to take public transportation to the wealthy neighborhoods, and by the time they get there, the food is all gone. Jesus said to eat the bread and drink the cup in remembrance of him. But it seems they're just eating and drinking but have forgotten him. They've forgotten his command to love others. Paul says they should examine themselves before taking communion. Do they really understand that it's about the unity of his body who partakes in his body? My God shot was in 10, 12 through 13, where Paul talks about temptation. He says, God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what he will empower us to say no to. This is probably the verse that gets twisted and misinterpreted into the mantra, God won't give you more than you can handle, which isn't in scripture. But when we read this verse in context, we can see that what Paul is really saying is more like, when Satan gives you temptation, God will give you the strength to resist it. So lean into his strength. This is not about having the strength in ourselves. This is about trusting Him to provide us with what we need to obey Him. Paul says God provides the way out. He is the one who will help us handle what comes our way. He is our escape hatch in every temptation. And He's where the joy is. If you've been with us since day one, you're only 30 days away from reading the entire Bible. This is definitely worth celebrating. So we have t-shirts in our store just for you. One says finisher. It's like a marathon t-shirt, but instead of saying 26.2 miles, it says 365 days. And listen to me, that shirt is perfect for you, no matter how long it has taken you to do those 365 days of reading. Even if it took you three years, you still completed 365 days of reading. The other shirt is for those of you who have done the very hard task of completing all 365 days this year. It says the Bible Recap Finisher with the year on it. We're telling you now so you can get it ordered in time to wear it on day 365. When you do wear it, be sure to post a pic and tag us. Head over to the TBR store to get yours now. It's com forward slash store, or you can click the link in the show notes. Hey, Bible readers, have you listened to Hope Nation's brand new Christmas podcast? It's called Scrooge, A Christmas Carol Podcast. Check out the brilliant storytelling and pick up on the Christmas themes of forgiveness, finding peace, and combating fear. It's a great way to show family and friends the lasting hope of Jesus. To listen to the podcast, click the link in the show notes.